Hi, this is Maya, and I'm co-host of the Cicada Story Slam with Annie Stewart. We um, set the podcast in a small town in Victoria, Australia, called Dalesford, where we have lots of progressive-thinking people, open-minded community. We run the Cicada Story Slam every third Thursday of the month at a local pub, and we have wonderful stories to share from our small town. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Cicada. (laughs) Yes, duly stolen from the moth that originated in America. But this is our own personal slant because we've realised that when we do it, we get to hear all about our community and we thoroughly enjoy it. To start, we would like to acknowledge we're on the land of the Judgerung. And just in case you didn't know... Our budget was passed last Tuesday night and there's funding in there for co-naming and renaming of different places. So we feel that's a great achievement. (laughs) We are the two DAGs that put in funding to start this off last year and was so much fun, went back again. So you'll all know Maya, of course, because she's the key inspiration for Words in Winter and she's going to run you through some of the things about the cicada. Okay, so after much ado about whether or not we should make this a competition, we're going to make it still a competition. But it's not to hurt anyone's feelings. If anyone tells a story and it doesn't win, it doesn't mean that your story's not wonderful. But it's a small, sleepy town, and some people need just a little bit of that entertainment element. So we have judges and... Anonymous judges. Anonymous judges, and it doesn't matter, but we're just going to do it. And... We weren't going to, but through people asking for it, we've decided to do that. Um, so uh, the other thing we just want to say to everybody that's telling a story and in here is that we're f- recording it on Facebook. So people who can't come, which is actually quite a few people, they're stuck at home for different reasons, so they can watch online. If you do want to tell a story and you don't want to be recorded, let us know. We're also making a podcast of this, so you can go to thecicada.com.au and see the podcasts of different stories. We have different themes every night. I mean, yeah, for each story slam every month. And the theme tonight is the longest night. Or wait. Or wait. Or wait. So the longest wait. The longest wait or the longest night. (laughs) Thank you so much to Annie for um, being, making this her brainchild. I'm very happy and honored to help. Thank you, Anthony Brzezzi, for helping us with the audio, and Jared for loaning us his microphone and producing the podcasts so that we can have a great resource for this community. Um, so just a reminder, we've got Kathy there on door and bell that you get a little reminder bell at five minutes, then you've got more, one more minute to finish your story. So it goes for six minutes. So if you haven't put your name down, don't worry too much because we're happy for you to come up anyway. But someone bravely volunteered to go first, and I'd like to invite Kevin Childs up to tell his story of The Longest Night. Waiting. If you're a newspaper person as I have been for 53 years waiting is such a part of your job you wait for the phone to ring for some high-flying son of a gun to ring you back or not you wait 
you wait for a press conference, you wait for a prime ministerial appearance, you wait if you're a police reporter for murder, uh, bloody mayhem, or even more blood and gore. You just wait. And um, I was thinking the waiting that I've done uh, here and there has been enormous. And uh, I, at one stage in a sort of a, a lurch of my career, I worked on a a shitty little paper in London which had a, uh, a, a fanatical um, urge to cover the Beatles because the Beatles were uh, bigger than God, as we know, and uh, every day we had to have a page one story about the Beatles. So uh, there, there I was uh, uh, inventing, sorry, uh, uh, coming up with page one stories about the Beatles. Came the great Beatles tour of America, uh, in 1964, or the Stone Age, for those who can't remember that date, um, they came back to London. In uh, the hysteria is, could, could scarcely be contained. The bobbies at the airport holding them back. Um, my job was to um, get down to a hotel where their bags were, and we waited and we waited while these mountains of seeming mountains of bags came down. And uh, there was a little boy with a camera, and my very smart photographer, of course, asked the little boy to stand in front of him, knowing that the Beatles, seeing a little pommy lad with a pale face, would stop and get the photograph, and the photographer would be able to push the boy aside and get his own photograph. But, that, but that's the ruthlessness of journalism. Um, my story uh, about waiting continues with John Lennon leaping into a Bentley and the photographer and I leaping into a rather battered uh, Morris Minor and uh, pursuing him through London because we had the pictures but we didn't have the words and uh, the page one was still waiting. Um, we wound our way through the West End and I seem to remember that we, um, we spotted a red light in Soho. I, being uh, young, stupid and adept, leapt out with the copy of the first edition held it up against the window, he wound it down, and we had what, what passed for a conversation. Uh, my accent and his accent could have been different languages. He could have been Urdu, I could have been Sanskrit, but uh, I got really good quotations for page one, saying, in his words, he was going home to Cynthia, of course, his then wife. This was a rather bizarre thing, in that one o'clock in the morning, at a red light, Suddenly there's a hundred people around. Where have they come from? They're all there. Well, I'm trying to, I'm doing my interview. Interview ends. The Bentley swishes away. I file my copy. Sixteen years later, I'm waiting again. I'm waiting this time in New York, outside the Dakota building where John Lennon has been shot. I'm waiting for the chief of detectives of New York police Anyone who remembers uh, the French Connection, this guy looked exactly like Popeye. He had the big black overcoat and a, and a grog blossom nose. And he waited and we waited. What was he waiting for? He was waiting for his favourite reporter to turn up, uh, the great Jimmy Breslin of the New York Daily News, known as the man who always supported New York's best and finest, as the coppers were known. Jimmy turned up. Uh, I had some trouble uh, because I had no ID. I had lost my wallet in Milan, slight problem. I lied to the police and told them it was in my hotel. Uh, the coppers were all right, get them out of here. No, don't get them out of here. Um, there was there were side shows I could tell you about. Uh, the coppers uh, came up and uh, 
spoke roughly to the policemen who had taken loudspeakers out of their taxis and had them three-decked playing all the Beatles numbers. And one of the coppers said memorably, uh, cut out that noise, to which the cabbie wonderfully replied, that ain't noise, that's poetry, double asshole. <laughs> I'd never heard double asshole before or since. It's a great term. To get back to the press conference, we waited and waited. It began, finally, when Jimmy must have been there and a woman from the networks lunged forward in a most athletic dive which almost broke the cable on her microphone to ask the initial question, was the killer a wacko? I thought, this is great, this is New York. Was the killer a wacko? Great question. Seeker after truth. On it went. So that night, I went back, I wrote my piece... I woke up next morning and I read uh, Jimmy Breslin's piece in the New York Daily News and the headline on, on it was this, A Song Dies on the Streets of New York. I thought that was worth waiting for. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was a great story and well worth the wait. I want you to know Kevin's another one of our great supporters for Words in Winter and we thank you for all your efforts with this. Here's another community player who works with the um, Agricultural, Agricultural Show. Please. With the He's the president, like he does it. <laughs> he does that Dalesford Agricultural Show. So if you've got anything to suggest later or want to help, here's your man. So I'm please working, yeah. welcome Don Harvey. Uh, no, that's serious. I would like anybody... Uh, I would uh, definitely like uh, volunteers for the show. Uh, if you... Anything. If you would like to wear a vest with Dalesford show on it, uh, right up to come and tell a story at the show, uh, I would love you to grab my arm and support... You'd be supporting Megan, Meg, who will be talking about her work on fermenting uh, and that kind of thing. So if you've got to, what I am, my jam maker has pulled out so there is an opening there is an opening there if you, if you can do anything like that. Now I am um, firstly I am sorry Anne that I missed last month with the flu uh, but I had prepared uh, on uh, did the stars come out tonight? I was going to talk about the uh, town hall pictures when I was about eight years old, when that was where the stars were for me. But I talked... I was going to mention that I hope that everybody had the experience of camping with their parents when they were younger, uh, watching the stars come out and counting the stars because there's always one star for about a half hour and then there's two and three and four. And I hope you've all had that experience. Uh, but So there is a link from last month to now. Uh, tomorrow uh, is my birthday, so this is always the best <laughs> night of the year for me and, and the, the longest too. <laughs> now, I didn't have to do that. 
my daughter, and for a wait, my daughter is heading from Canberra, but she couldn't get away until about one o'clock, so she's somewhere on the road, and I thought I might have been one of the last speakers tonight. I'm not just deliberately filibusting. Is this, when does the clock start? It started, honey. All right. They, the, I, think, I think everybody kind of learns how to stay up all night and make the night. And, and my first recollections of when I started staying up all night is the great Ashes tour of 1961 when I was in Form 5, finding high school pretty hard, but I was allowed to stay up to listen to the cricket. And it went till half past three, and uh, you can kind of pretend you're doing a lot of British history and English and geology and economics in, in that six hours of cricket. Uh, and I, I really started to like staying up at that stage. And uh, over the years, I've always been somebody who works right through every, you know, three or four or five times a year um, for, for something to do. Uh, somebody who was very clever told me, don't worry if you can't sleep, just work right through, and sooner or later, on Sunday, you'll sleep. And uh, that is how I come to love having long nights. And uh, for years, uh, it was an enjoyment to me to spend the night doing something that just I liked. But of course, then you, when you uh, you start meeting girls, and 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 in a long time ago, you didn't. It wasn't like now. You kind of had to talk to them for twelve months, and uh, <laughs> and. Uh, it was, and no, it was really good. It was, it, no, it was really good because you you uh, kind of uh, filled in the hours on something that you hope you both enjoyed. Um, but, uh, and then, of course, within no time at all, uh, with having children and that... <laughs> At um, 25, I had, uh, and I know it's 49 years ago because my son's here tonight, and he's 49. Uh, we, when he was born, he was six weeks premature, and at, after three days, they decided that uh, his blood would have to be changed. And... Um, it was a terrible night. The doctor couldn't kind of get there until about quarter to eleven. And in those days, the blood was changed in a in a prem baby through the umbilical, the old umbilical cord, with a syringe. The doctor listened to the baby's heart and and operated the syringe to suck out blood and put new blood in by ear and hand for hours until about four o'clock in the morning. So my 
longest night by far of my life was that night uh, when we listened, watched the doctor. Uh, and we, we, that was the first night. They hadn't let us see the baby until that stage. And uh, it let us in about three or, three or four o'clock in the morning uh, because they thought he was going to survive. And uh, it was a very long night. But um, that's... Uh, the, I've got a bit of a problem here because, uh, and I, I should have said, I wouldn't be surprised, the doctor's probably got an app these days that <laughs> does that. But uh, the, uh, uh, that night has been surpassed. I've been in hospital myself a few years ago uh, with non-Hodgkin's. So I spent seven or eight weeks in Four South, which I think is still there at at Ballarat base. After I'd been there about five weeks, got to know the whole, everything about the place and of a, of a night, you know, deathly quiet in July in Ballarat. You can hear people walking along a footpath for 200 metres at four o'clock in the morning. And uh, the old, used to be an old nursing, the nurse's home and you'd, you could tell whether the nurses had been out or whether they were working by the noise of their either their high heels or their hospital shoes. And uh, that, so I, I kind of, it was a very quiet place, except for one night, fellow in the bed next to me, and the, the day before I had heard them tell him that He's gone too far, and at his age, 83, uh, they weren't prepared to uh, try and cut the primary site out of his brain and that kind of thing. And he just, if you don't mind, and his two sons there, we'll just uh, try medication and that, you know, you'll be right here, but it's your decision whether you go home. And, and I don't know if it's quality time or not. But um, the, the night after that, I'm just kind of listening to the, the silence and about to go to sleep when the chap, and I'm feeling terribly sorry for him because he's been given this terrible news, but he, <laughs> he wakes me up and says, can you hear that? Bloody crowd, he said. Can you hear them? Why? And I can't use the word that he kept referring to the the uh, the Negro musicians that he could hear playing in the alleyway outside. No alleyway, no Negro musicians. In fact, deathly silence in July. But the music continued. I assure you, from about quarter past 12 until the lovely lady who used to bring a cup of tea at 20 to 7 arrived and poor old George had spent the night telling me every every few minutes, why don't these bastards, why doesn't somebody come and get these Negro chaps out of the, out of the alleyway? Just, and... 
uh, it was terrible. And it got to the stage where I had to, uh, and uh, and the, the couple of the nurses were feeling the same as I. But we knew that he should never have been using this word. But we, it was kind of kind of funny because he kept shouting it out that they were playing music just outside the window, and uh, I. I uh, just would sympathised with him, but the worst thing about was you knew that he was full of too much, uh, too much morphine, and he was hallucinating terribly because it was, I certainly couldn't hear him. The worst after poor old George keeping me awake all night at quarter to seven when the lady brought the cup of tea. George kind of wakes up and turns to me and says. Did you hear those bastards playing music all night? <laughs> yeah, George, for a little while there, George. <laughs> but no, it was a terrible night, and for all kinds of reasons. But uh, no worries. Anyway, I hope that's... Yes, we should have known when we had a title like The Longest Night or The Longest Wait, we would get something that was moving and, you know, um, maybe a medical condition. So thank you, Don, for sharing those two parts of your stories. We've got a newcomer tonight, which is... No, Cathy, what? Pardon? Oh, Toby's ready to go up. Toby, one of our old favourites. Let's hear it for Toby. Hello, everyone. Uh, Hi. The Longest Night. Gee, a bunch of things came to mind with that one. When you were talking about the first time you stay up all night, I remember the first time I ever stayed up all night, it was on the Spirit of Tasmania when I was 14, coming back from Tasmania. And all the other kids, it was a school trip. And the whole of, pretty much the whole of Year 10 had gone. And... um, we were coming back, and there were dolphins following the boat in the moonlight. There's a full moon behind the boat with dolphins, and I'd never seen it before. And I kept thinking, I should really turn around and go back and go to sleep. And everyone else did, and I couldn't. And I just kept sort of, I'd be going like this, and then the dolphin would jump out, and I'd turn back, and I just kept watching. It's the first time I ever sat up all night long in my life. Um, and I'm glad I did. And I saw the dawn, and it was incredible. But anyway, that's not my story. Um, I've always got on really well with dogs. I love dogs, and I've really never had a problem with dogs, except this one time. Well, sort of two times. When I was about four or five, my big sister, Fiona, said, let's play doctors and nurses. I said, okay. She said, you take all your clothes off. I said, all right. I took all my clothes off. We're out in the garden. And then she bundled them up, and she threw them over the fence into the neighbor's garden, ran inside, locked the doors and windows, and said, you've got to go in and get your clothes taken. (laughs) And I said, you've got to go get your clothes before mum gets home or you'll be in trouble. <laughs> and I crawled under the fence into our neighbour's garden, into their vegetable patch. Remember, they had these big cabbages, and I was crawling around naked, and I saw the bundle of clothes up at the end of a row of cabbages, and I went up, and as I got to it, I looked up that way, and their bulldog, their British bulldog, was sitting on the porch, and they kind of looked at me like... And, and I looked at this, and there was this kind of still moment, and I kind of moved gently towards the clothes, and it stood up. And I, oh, and I grabbed the clothes, and I turned, and I didn't, wasn't quite sure what to do, but... Very luckily, because I don't think they were home, I bolted towards the gate, 
with the dog running after me, barking already, and I, the gate was open, which is incredibly lucky, just slightly open, and I got through it and I slammed it shut behind me as the dog leapt up and smashed into the gate, barking and you know, throwing in the mouth and everything. So what would have happened, I don't know, but um, when I came back around the corner, my sister was still in the house looking at me like, no, put your clothes on, just, you've got to get dressed out there, you can't come in until you... Anyway. But um, apart from that, I always got on well with dogs, until the longest night. When I was hitching through Spain when I was 26, I ended up in this funny little town in central Spain, late at night. And Spain's a funny country. I, I found Spain very macho. I would found that the guys are a little bit like really testy. They're always looking you up and down and kind of like... There's this sort of questioning thing of, you know, are you man enough? There's this kind of toughness thing going on in Spain when I was there. I could feel it. It was very strange. And... I didn't want to stay in... T- I had very little money, so I was sleeping out and stuff. And I, I walked out to the edge of town where there was a sort of a... It was a very dark night. There were only a few stars. It was mostly cloudy. And I'd left the lights of the town behind. And this is before mobile phones, and my, my torch had died. But in the starlight, I could make out the black silhouette of what looked like a small factory. It could have been an abandoned small factory. I'm not quite sure. Or it could have been like a, a car workshop or something. It was this little fattoria-type building. And I thought, well, I'll sleep up against the wall of that. But as I'd been leaving the town, far in the distance, sort of half-consciously, I'd been hearing this dog barking incessantly and really angrily. And I hadn't paid any attention to it. And I got to where the factory was, and I laid out my sleeping roll in my sleeping bag. And then I, as I lay down and got ready to sleep, I realised that the dog was quite a bit... The barking had actually got closer. I thought it was chained up in someone's garden, but they got significantly closer. And I didn't pay a lot of attention to it until, and as I say, I had no means of making light or anything, until at a certain point listening, I realised, oh, that dog's only about 100 yards away. And it was really, rah, 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 And then it would stop. And there'd be like a couple of minutes silence. And rah, 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 again. It's just this insane barking. And then it stopped for quite a while. And I thought, oh, well, it's gone on its way. Everything's fine. And I was lying down getting off to sleep. And then the factory walls behind me, the road was directly in front. The dog had been the last I heard, about 100 yards up that way. And then about 30 yards off that way, I heard the barking again. And it sounded like a big dog, if you know what I mean. It wasn't a little yappy dog. It was a big, big big-chested dog in the dark. And um, I was really unused to being afraid of dogs, Uh, partly because I know a calm adult human being can always actually kill a dog in a fight. That's true, you can uh, you'll, you'll get savaged, but you can kill a dog. If you have to to save your life, you can kill a dog. And I knew that consciously. Um, but, you know, life and death. Um, but it's, it's true. The, the Black Panthers in America, the police used to use dogs against them, and the Black Panthers worked this out a long time ago. They worked out the best technique for killing big police mastiffs and stuff like that, if, if necessary. And uh, they had several techniques worked out because that's, they had to save their lives. So I knew a little bit about that. But even so, the thought of being savaged by a dog I couldn't see in the dark was deeply unpleasant to me, as you might imagine. And all that happens by a little Swiss army knife. And it barked about 30 minutes off, and I went, what's it doing over there? Like, how did it get from, what's going on? And then it stopped. And it stopped for quite a long time. And I be, it was pretty late, and I'd had a big, long day hitching and everything. And I was drowsy, and I was sort of up against them. Oh, I'm sure it's going to go away. I'll, I'll just fall asleep. And, and as I was falling asleep, you know, maybe sort of 20 minutes later when I'd relaxed a little bit, maybe about 20 metres off on that side, I heard it barking again, crazily, like really quite close now. And I 
bolt awake. And I sat there for a long time. And then I began hearing a different sound. I began hearing this. This would go on for a while. And then it was moving around, just gradually doing this sort of smaller and smaller half circle and getting closer and closer to me. Very slowly, over about two hours. With me sitting there, wide awake, <laughs> with my Swiss Army knife. And then I realised at a certain point that I could sort of see it in the dark. It was a, dark, a darker darkness. And even the starlight, I think I could see its eyes twinkling at a certain point. And it was about 10 metres away. And it stayed there all night. And I kept drifting off to half asleep, and I'd wake up to the sound of that growling again. And stayed there all night until dawn. And when, I, when dawn came, I'd... I'd drifted, I'd been drifting in and out, and at a certain point I woke up, and it was gone. But I didn't get to sleep really that night. I was pretty much sitting up all night with a knife, with this dog growling there. And um, in the morning it had gone. I didn't have any sleep. And what did I learn from that? I have no idea what I learned from that, but I just thought I'd share that story with you. That was my longest night. Thanks. Thank you so much, Toby. Now, I think I'm right in saying we've got a newcomer coming up. I'm going to invite Zane to come and tell his story. Hello. Yes, uh, newcomer. I'm, uh, my name's Zane. I'm a Ballarat native. Came here for the mineral water, obviously. The, the Dom Perignon of mineral water. Um, and I'm going to tell a story about a night I had in a, uh, in a bar where I used to work. And this is, this is the first time I've told a story. Well, it's not the first time I've told a story, but it might be the first time people have listened. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this, this little bar that I used to work in is called Third Class. Um, and that probably says it all. But I wrote a poem about the bar, just to give you a little bit of context, the first couple of lines of the poem are um, banged up in duckboard place, locked face to face in a conversational embrace fueled by MDMA and rave juice. So that kind of gives you a bit of context of <laughs> where we're at. And I worked behind the bar in this particular bar. Well, I didn't really work behind the bar. I was a bussy, but I worked behind the bar when it suited me. And it suited me on this particular night because I still remember she kind of drifted through the strobe light smoke and the lasers. And as soon as I heard her voice, I was in. And from there, I dropped the bucket and I was working behind the bar. And I gave away so many free drinks uh, that I probably could have lost my job. But I didn't care because she was just perfect. You know, she was the one. And this is the story of that night when I met her and it's a very long night because it still continues to this day and it still replays in my mind like one of those sad repeats on TV that comes up on Sunday morning when you're feeling a little bit lonely and emotional <laughs> and all of a sudden you go, oh, that was really nice, but oh, God, that was really nice, you know. <laughs> and I still, I remember her voice because it was this perfect sort of English eloquence with just the right amount of mischief and wit. Um, and I don't remember exactly what she looked like, but I remember her hair and her dress and her face, and I remember everything about her, not visually, but like as a feeling. You know, that feeling of looking at her is in every cell in my body. 
And I didn't care about losing my job. She was getting all the free drinks because as far as I was concerned, I'd already made a plan to move to England and we were going to get a house and a Range Rover. <laughs> I have a couple of little English kids. And I uh, might have even changed cricket teams, but I wasn't sure at that point. So I was trying to sort of pretend I was working behind the bar while I was doing my job as a bussy and cleaning glasses and scrubbing the toilets and pretending that that wasn't me and then trying to figure out times where I could talk to her. And then my manager, Crispy, he said, oh, we need someone to go down to Coles and get some rubbish bags and get some Glad Wrap bags. And I was like, mate, I'm in. Let me go to Coles. So I was like, I, I walked out, I found her. I said, look, I've got to go to Coles. Would you like to come? It's just a short walk down the street. I'm going to go to Coles. And she goes, yeah, great. And so I, and I, again, like, I don't remember seeing her. I don't remember talking to her. But the feeling of this whole night, I don't even remember the words that were said. I just remember sitting on Collins Street, waiting for a taxi while she took her shoes off and just being like so captivated and being like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, I love this girl. <laughs> and then we walk down to Coles and I'm getting some rubbish bags and she's walking around Coles with her heels in her hand and black muck all over her shoes, all over her feet, sorry, which if I saw anyone else doing that after the races, I would be critiquing them heavily. <laughs> but for her, it was like, oh, it's so cute and edgy and spontaneous, you know. It's like, this is great. <laughs> and I got the things and I really... You know, in that moment, I felt like I had magical powers because I was able to make time stretch. From the time we left the club, went to Coles, got in the taxi, drove back up Collins Street, and I remember going up Collins Street, and we could have been driving or I could have just been floating up Collins Street talking to this girl. And it just seemed to go forever and ever and ever. And then I got back to the club and I walked in with the rubbish bags and Crispy goes, where have you been? And it had actually been forever and ever and ever. <laughs> Something that should have taken five minutes. Apparently I've been gone for like an hour and a half. And I, I mean, I don't know, you know, just, they change the aisles of the rubbish bags every time in Coles. It's not my fault. What am I to do? So anyway, as my manager Crispy is just tearing shreds off me about these rubbish bags and the fact that I've been gone for two hours... Behind me somewhere, she drifted back into the strobe-filled smoke room that she came from, and just like that, she was gone. And all night, like... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... it's yeah. All, no- all night, I looked for it. All night, I was looking around, and people in those sort of environments, it's just like, you know, people are just going past you, and you're sort of blinded by these lights and flashing, and you see a face, like, is that the face? Or- and it was kind of this weird thing where uh, the longer I couldn't find her, it was like the more hope I had, because if I couldn't find her, it meant she still might be somewhere, but at the same time, I was like, well, she's not anywhere, but she could be somewhere, but I know she's not there, but she could be over there. It was brutal. <laughs> anyway, this particular club, it, usually we'd, we'd close up around nine in the morning and then, and then we'd keep sort of drinking all day. And it was a long night because most of the nights there went for three nights. Um, but <laughs> this particular night was very long. And I just remember being in the front office and all I had was her name. And I can't tell you her name because I can't remember it. But <laughs> at that particular time, I had her first name and I was in the, I was in the office on Facebook let's say her name was like Charlotte I was like looking up Charlotte from England (laughs) (laughs) until until like 3 o'clock in the afternoon 
And then just for weeks and weeks and weeks, I thought she's going to come back in or she's going to, you know, I'm going to get a friend request or I'm going to find her or there's going to, something's going to happen. But, but never, you know, never. And so the longest night, it is a long night because that night extended for weeks of like hope and like, oh, is she coming back? And every night I was in there, I was like, oh, that. And then it extends out incrementally now. As I said, it comes up every now and then that sort of replay. And it's that replay of someone who could have been perfect, but probably wasn't. And the memory of being perfect is actually made worse by not having it finish (laughs) you know because there's that saying you'll never con an honest john and the premise is that you can't con someone unless they think they're conning you and (laughs) the reality is that the headspace i was in at that time i probably didn't deserve someone as good as i thought she was even though she wasn't probably that good of a story. Thank you so much. I do believe we've got another newcomer tonight and I'm going to invite Letitia up to the stage, please. Letitia. Hello. Years and years ago, I used to sing. I used to sing in a kind of professional manner. haven't done it for years, so preemptive apologies. But... I arrived in New York, and this is probably the longest three minutes of my life. I arrived in New York, and I'd been invited to guest perform at this incredibly expensive and zhuzhi jazz club. And I'd been in the country two days, and I was off to rehearse. And uh, I arrived with these New York jazz dudes, and they are like the full jazz dude yeah, berets, everything. So anyway, um, the guy says to me, says, well, what songs do you want to sing? And I, I list a couple of songs, and one of them was Etta James's Trust in Me. And I, I said, oh, Etta James, Trust in Me. And, and he looked at me like this, like... <laughs> and I'm like, oh, fucking New York, excuse me, New York attitudes. And I was like, well, do you know it? To which he says, well, shit, lady, it's your gig. So I go, well, is that a yes or is that a no? And he said, well, okay, what key? So anyway, rehearse it all up, get there on the night. I get up, you know, okay, really probably about as many people as are here tonight, so quite intimate, you can see everybody's faces. And uh, I start singing. And um, it's a beautiful, does anybody know the song? It's a beautiful song. It goes something like this, bearing in mind I haven't sung for about 20 years, but anyway, it goes, Trust in me in all you do. Have the faith I have in you. So I start singing, and uh, basically the entire audience in front of me, forks are dropping onto plates, jaws are hitting the floor, I am faced with a sea of people going... (laughs) And I'm thinking, what on earth is going on here? I mean, yes, okay, I am not Etta James, but a problem of this magnitude we simply do not have. So I'm thinking toilet paper, 
dress falling apart and I'm thinking okay what is going on here so I think okay well maybe I'm just not bringing it so I gear myself up and I really think I I will win them over I don't know what is wrong but I will win them over so I'm giving it everything I'm like come to me when things go wrong and people are just kind of going And they're looking at the floor and I'm just thinking... And, like, the song seemed to go on forever. And I'm just... I'm just, just like, oh, my God. What, what is this? Anyway, the song finishes and I think I heard one, like, piece of cutlery clank on a plate and the club owner go... <laughs> at the side of the stage. And I figured, well, you know what... When you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> I'm not doing the other two songs. I just, I'm, I'm cutting the losses. I'm out of here. I sling, thank you very much, everybody. Off to the side of the stage. I say to the woman that I'm staying with, I'm going, uh, Elizabeth, what, what, what was that? She looks at me, she goes, Letitia, that's the Tampax ad. So while we let our judges talk amongst themselves, I'm going to tell you a story of the longest night, just to fill in, fill in. (laughs) And many of you might know, probably the longest night in our family is the night we lost our brother in East Timor. But that's too sad a story, and now I do poetry on Monday nights. It's going to be a, a series. I've been working on it. But I thought I'd tell you about the longest night. And it was in front of my biggest storytelling audience, and it was where I got the biggest accolade of my life. But it was a very long night. And it was back in 2004. It was 150 years since the Eureka Uprising. And the Victorian government gave Ballarat all this money to put on a world music concert. So they were rolling in people from all over the world. Hugh Masakala, famous trumpeter, was coming. Paul Kelly, Deborah Conway. I tried to find it today who else there were. Heaps of people. It was just such a huge night. Over three days it was going to play. The only problem was... (laughs) The only problem was that no locals had got any work and I thought, well, this doesn't seem right. But as fortune would have it, I worked at ABC Ballarat and I had the number, the mobile number of the guy organising it and I thought, I'll see what I can do because as well as being one of the naughty ones in my family, I've got a brother that overshadows me for naughtiness completely His name's Paulie Stewart and he's been in the bands The Painters and Dockers and The Dilly All-Stars. And so when I told him, I've got the number, what do we do, what do we do? We rang this guy and Paul and The Dilly All-Stars, they talked themselves into playing one night um, for the world music and I talked them into giving me the day of emceeing a concert that went from 12 midday till 12 at night. I had a Eureka dress made, the five stars. I bought high heels, not my thing, that I could look a little bit taller, all sparkly to wear. 
My big problem was, though, that I have, I went to see the Dilly All-Stars the Friday before I was to be on stage all day Saturday. And, yes, I was known to give it a little bit of a nudge. So the next day when I'm supposed to be on stage, I have forced in thumping headache. So all day long, I'm having to introduce people. Now, as fortune would have it, I had managed to get also at that time uh, some funding from ABC Regional Production Fund to create a series of radio uh, stories. I had 20 four-minute episodes telling the story of Eureka. So I'd worked all the way through it. I'd read so much stuff. I knew so much about it. And so when I came to introduce all the bands, I was able to liken them to different parts of the Eureka story. I remember um, Yothu Yindi was there and in my time in the Northern Territory, I happened to go out with the fellow that managed the band, Yothu Yindi. But on stage, I also knew there was three young Wotherong people from, uh, from Ballarat and Uncle Teddy Lovett was standing in the front row and I said, Teddy, you must be so proud. Here are all your kids. And it went on and on, and I was so sick. But the worst thing was that this rotten roadie that was doing all the sound and the light, all he did was sort of grunt at me, and it was like, oh, this is terrible. I don't know if I'm going to last. Then I saw my naughty brother Paul walk past in front of me, and he had a black frilly shirt on that happened to be my black frilly shirt. (laughs) And when I saw him sweating on stage, I thought, I am never wearing that shirt again. But the accolade came when it was time to introduce Jimmy Little. And Jimmy Little is much loved in the Aboriginal community. And my brother's partner, Donna Brown, a Kambangari woman, her mum was my niece's grandma. Her name's Auntie Janice Brown, and she's got this famous photo of her with her arm around Jimmy Little. But as I was getting ready to introduce him, it struck me that he was very much like John Basson Humphrey. And I don't know if you know the story of Eureka, but if you drive into Ballarat, where there's shells on the corner and you go in, that's Humphrey Street, the longest street in Ballarat. And Peter Lola, who wanted to uh, fight and he was, you know, antagonistic, the Irishman, he wanted to rally everybody. It was John Basson Humphrey that was a pacifist. He didn't want to fight and he wanted everyone to negotiate and he wanted to keep working on it. So the whole way through I was trying to liken this key figure in the Eureka story with Jimmy Little. And everybody seemed to enjoy it. I got a huge clap just to, you know, to, for likening these two important characters. Instead of fighting, they were all about um, peace and freedom and working together and pacifism, whatever the word is. I've tried. Peace, that's it. By now my head's stumping and as I finally walked off the stage, this roadie had grunted me all day long, just said, Nice intro. And I always thought, oh, that was the nicest accolade I've ever had. (laughs) And it was the longest night because I was so hungover.
I'd now like to invite two local artists up onto the stage to tell us who they've picked. Miriam Porter and Jonathan Larson. Here we go. You have to stand up here. Um, we don't want to dissect the whole the whole proceedings. Um, some really nice stories. Um, um, and we, we were quite unanimous, I think, in each, at each point. Indeed, yes. We didn't argue at all, no. I don't think, which, which <laughs> was very strange. We, um, so we sort of worked it out on a sort of a from one to five, and we generally sort of came in pretty close. And um, So we've given it to Zane. He's just, just a half... Yeah. half yeah. He's, he's, he's just a, like a point oh five ahead of just... Um, a number of other people, um, a couple of other stories who we really liked. Um, um, so, yeah, just it just it just seemed to engage, I think, and and with, with freshness and and you know we could have got, given it for the the singing, the New York singing. I mean, there's a whole lot of things we could have given it to, but we we just thought he sort of he just kept, had everyone sort of there, and it was it was sort of fresh and fun. So, okay. So that's it for tonight. Hang around, have a drink, and don't forget our next one is Thursday, July the 18th, before I fly off on a big adventure. And the theme is courage. And also, and also, as a footnote, I just want to say that we've decided to do a trivia night for Words in Winter, because we have so little funding this year. So um, the date will be coming, but Words in Winter is coming, and we're going to be opening Words in Winter with the cicada. I believe here, unless for some reason it gets too and huge and we have to go to some auditorium, but no. So ears open for Woods and Winter. And because we're still not quite over the live, love, life experience, <laughs> the, theme for the, the, for the theme for that... Um, oh, for Woods and Winter, Winter is life. Life. <laughs> and Rodney, I want a story out of you. Hi, I'm Zara, and you're listening to the Cicada Story Slam. The Cicada Story Slam is in a country town in Victoria named Dalsford, and it may be a small place, but the community and people are great, and I, if I don't say so myself, the stories are even better. I would like to acknowledge Annie Stewart and Maya Irel, who made all this possible, and of course everyone who helps out behind the scenes, and you, for listening. If you have a wild story and you're a part of our community, Please feel free to come to the Cicada Story Slam and share your amazing stories because we'd love to hear them. And the story takes you there. Don't know why, you don't know where.